Heavenly Father, truly you are our Father. We are your children. You have intersected with our lives to accomplish that. And having made it possible for us to again have fellowship with you, our sins not simply covered, but washed away entirely through the precious Lord Jesus and his completed sacrifice once and for all. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. And because of that great sacrifice and its accomplishment of your purpose regarding our sins, we are encouraged to come even boldly not to a throne of judgment, but to a throne of grace. So thank you so much, Father, for that preciousness and all the blessings of it. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we have been uh, encouraged from your word so often. I thank you for myself personally this week as I've considered the truths uh, that we'll look further into this morning in the book of Genesis. And thank you, Father, for the the word of truth. And even in the very first book, there is so much truth recorded, which is beneficial to our spirits and souls. Thank you for encouraging us often through it. For all those who are gathered here this morning, and we just rejoice uh, that you've uh, brought us together, Heavenly Father. Thank you again for that and for all the beauties that surround us and how this all speaks so powerfully concerning your creative power, your sustaining power, and your glory, Heavenly Father. And what a blessing it is in this special time of the year and on this special day. We give you great thanksgiving and praise. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful that we in these darkening times would see many opportunities to reach out to others, to reach out, Heavenly Father, with the word of grace and life uh, that we might share it with those desperately in need. The days do seem to darken, and Father, with what's happening in our nation, we're just uh, brokenhearted, and uh, we know the enemy's at work. We know the enemy uses every tool at his disposal, Uh, breaking down families, marriages. The young ones are even more susceptible to lies and taught to them school, social media. They become addicted to various uh, drugs and other passions of the flesh. So, Father, uh, there are so many who need deliverance, and we have opportunities. So, Father, I pray that we'd be bold to reach out to many and and see you bring about great miracles in the lives of some. We're thankful that there are those in our nation who speak boldly. We can easily see how It could have been otherwise that all would be silenced by the threats of the government, by the threats of even family and friends who turn against us. Even those who once held 
to the truth turning aside heavenly father and uh, the effect that has on us as we sometimes are silenced at least we 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 uh, turn away when opportunity calls so heavenly father i pray that many would stand up in these days speak boldly truth and not just truth in a worldly sense so that's often valuable for the, for the time being but but spiritual truth heavenly father truth that has power to transform even the gospel the very good news of your grace itself so father um, thank you so much for these opportunities and i pray that we'd be bold bolder than before to speak forth your uh, precious word and that you'd draw many in these darkening days while there's still time perhaps only a moment or a day or a week or a month or a year until this uh, period of grace will end and we'll be caught up into glory evermore to be with you heavenly father and our lord jesus so father as we open your word now i, I pray that it would be a great blessing to us in christ's name amen Let's move ahead. I'm uh, wanting next week to finish up our study in Genesis. And we will do that, Lord willing. Today, we introduced another theme. I think it'll be the final theme. Remember, we've been looking uh, for some time at Genesis and the various themes that we find revealed there so clearly. The first theme was that of the inspiration of Genesis and how all of the writers of Scripture give testimony to that. Genesis is inspired, given by God, and, and foundational uh, for our faith. So uh, all have underscored that. That was the first theme. Then there were other, a number of other themes. One was uh, that God works through human weakness to glorify himself and his strength and power. And how other way could he work? After all, we're all sinners. <laughs> we're all descendants of Adam. We have his mark upon us. There's the curse upon the earth and uh, upon Adam's offspring, uh, which we share. How else could God accomplish any purpose apart from working with sinners and therefore with those who are weak and frail? And yet God uses our weakness. And we saw that revealed so clearly in the book of Genesis. We also saw how, how God works to bring judgment on sin and sinners, but at the same time, he brings deliverance for some. And uh, that's uh, his selective work, even elective, elective work. I'm so thankful he intersected with my life. I'm sure you are too. As he intersected with yours, and have you often stopped to think? I certainly have. Where would I be otherwise if the Lord God had not intersected with my life? And not just once. And I'm not thinking only of saving us from death. I'm thinking of 
saving us from eternal death, <laughs> right? <clears throat> Bringing us his word of grace, having protected us from enemies before that point in time and after that point in time and bringing us now uh, to this very day. Then we learned how God works personally. Of course, if he's intersecting with their lives, it will have to be personal, but that God develops a personal relationship with his people. It's not us seeking God, it's the Lord seeking us. And he follows us down the byways and paths of life to find us, to draw us, to hold us, to strengthen us, encourage us in times of trial. And there are many times of trial, are there not? So uh, God builds personal and intimate relationships with sinners. That's what we looked at last time. And we saw how God... Uh, reveals that by giving names. He gives names. Parents give names, but sometimes God also gives a name, and it's revealed in Genesis how he did that often. And uh, as I said, I believe that the book of life has names in it, but they're probably our new names, although God knows our current names well too, does he not? He knows us all by name and therefore is personally committed to us. And I think it's really important to realize that, that uh, this faith of ours, it's not a religious pursuit. It's a, a response to the truth of the living God as he's reached out to us personally and in individual often unique ways, but uh, there are many commonalities, but often unique uh, to us personally and drawn us to himself. And uh, he knows our names and we'll never forget them. So that's where we looked last time. Today, I want to take what's probably the most important theme in the book of Genesis uh, in view. We've already dealt with it uh, often here and there, but today I'd like to tie a few things together. And that is the theme of how from the beginning until the end of Genesis, and the same is true in the entire word of the living God, there is a scarlet thread woven. That is a scarlet thread it's a trail of blood, actually. In fact, there are two trails of blood in Genesis and in the Bible. One began with Adam in the Garden of Eden. When the Lord God, after Adam had sinned, sacrificed animals to provide a covering for Adam and Eve. They had lost their covering of glory, their garment of glory, because of rebellion and sin. And the Lord God covered them with coats of skins. Where did that come from? From sacrificing animals, of course. So the trail of blood began in the Garden of Eden, 
But sadly, even though the testimony of that continued with Abel, the younger son born to Adam and Eve outside of the garden, right? In fact, east of Eden is where they were dwelling. And uh, even though Adam continued the testimony that a blood sacrifice was required if one would have <clears throat> effective personal or, or even one could say acceptable worship of the Lord God, another trail of of blood began when Cain killed his brother. So two trails of blood. One began in the garden and continued on. And that's the trail of blood sacrifice <clears throat> as uh, essential if any sinner would dare to approach unto a holy and righteous God. And secondly, the trail of blood. from Cain's martyrdom of his brother until our current time and on into the future, until finally God erases this uh, forever, which he shall do, right? So two trails of blood. One has to do with righteousness and the other with pure evil. Genesis is the book of creation and life Sure, surely, but it's also the book of death, right? We see mentioned many, many times. In fact, 33 times in Genesis, twice as much as in any other book of the Bible is the word died. 33 times. You remember the words well, and he died, and he died, and he died. So, yes, Genesis is the book of creation and life, but... Because of the stain of sin, death came upon all. And there were very few exceptions. In fact, only two are noted. Um, Enoch and Elijah. So life was reigning. In fact, God had said, go forth and multiply and fill full the earth, right? with life, and they did, right? But because of Adam's sin, death reigned as well. Now, there was a revelation from the beginning in the stars that God gave, and we touched briefly on that before, about how when God allowed sin into the world, he also had a plan of redemption. And that is revealed in the creation. Not so much today, because... Uh, the enemy has perverted the meanings of the stars that had names with meanings, and the constellations had meanings as well. That's all been perverted into astrology, which is not something anyone should have anything to do with today. It is Satan's tool. But God didn't allow sin into the world without a plan of redemption, and it was revealed in the heavens. But what we see in the written word of God is much more revelation concerning the plan of redemption. And the context of that is the realm of sin and death, of course. So again, in Genesis, two trails of blood, one beginning in the garden, continuing with Abel, 
after Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden and brought forth their first children, and the other one, the other trail, the trail of sin through Cain. And uh, I can only imagine how evil his offspring were. And scripture doesn't say that much about it, but we know a lot simply by looking at the, the peoples that surrounded the family that came out of Seth, who was born after Cain was sent away, right, into exile. And we'll look about into that today. Seth's descendants were set apart from Cain's. So the Sethites and the Cainites had little to do with one another at the beginning, although I'm sure over time the Sethites were greatly corrupted. And we know something about that just by reading Genesis. Okay, so our outline today is simple enough. The heart of the matter is the provision of a substitute in the scarlet thread of redemption. The heart of the matter, the provision of a substitute in the scarlet thread of redemption. We'll look at seven examples of how that theme is presented. Seven. First of all, the example of Adam. Sin entered the world, but God offered hope. <laughs> Sin entered the world, but God offered hope. Then the example of Abel. Then it's going to be Seth, Seth, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The example of Abel. An animal sacrifice makes the difference. Thirdly, Seth. Even his name foreshadows the coming substitute. Of course, the coming substitute, the seed of the woman, our Lord Jesus, right? Then the example of Noah. True worship revolves around the altar, the altar, the center of true worship. Then the example of Abraham. From beginning to end, only God is worthy. Only God is worthy. In the example of Isaac, a quiet life demonstrates God's heart of blessing. Isaac lived a quiet and simple life, demonstrating God's heart of blessing. And then the example of Jacob, the altar testifies of a transformed life. A transformed life. So first of all, the example of Adam, sin enters the world, but God offers hope. And for that, we turn to Genesis chapter 3. Eve has partaken of the forbidden fruit. She has encouraged Adam to do the same. He has followed and has partaken of the fruit. And uh, has received the condemnation that God promised if he should partake of that fruit, that forbidden fruit. <clears throat> and uh, God makes a promise to Satan, who was the great tempter in all of this, right? Makes the promise 
that he will suffer consequence. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's the so-called proto-evangel, proto-gospel, first statement of the coming redeemer, the seed of the woman. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And then Adam. Unto Adam, he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all living. And then this great truth in verse 21 that is the foundation of the crimson thread I mentioned. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Okay, verse 24, he drove the man out and sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. And he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Okay, that brings us... uh, to the subject of um, the overriding subject, really, of of this uh, book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, and that is that through sin, death came into the world and uh, all the consequences of that. And that sin stain brought judgment, it brought condemnation, it brought death in every dimension, ultimately. And we see that reflected here in chapter 5 of Genesis. And I'd like Linda to read those five introductory verses. Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Linda? This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God, made he him. Male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived a hundred and thirty years, and begot a son in his own likeness, after his image, and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam, after he had begot Seth, were eight hundred years, and he begot sons and daughters. 
And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Thank you, Linda. And he died. Notice he lived nearly a millennia, 930 years. The lifespan before the flood was extremely long. Uh, it's much speculation as to why that is. I think it's pretty easy to understand. There was a water canopy surrounding the earth, protecting against the uh, the effect of the sun and also against uh, cosmic rays, you know, from space, harming the very genetic uh, structure of, of humanity over time, <clears throat> right, and of, of other creatures as well. So. What do we see here? Adam was created, it says, in the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. And verse 3 says, Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image. Everybody talks about how everybody's in the image of God today. The fact is they're all in the image of Adam. Are there many characteristics that Adam had as well in contemporary man? Absolutely, right? That carries over, much carries over. But the whole point of the image is that Adam was created without sin in the image of his creator. Seth came to be, he was begotten, right, uh, in Adam's image. That's a distinction that we should take note of. Notice that it called, he called his name Seth. <laughs> okay, I'm going to comment about, on that in a moment. Now all had the image of Adam. And uh, what does Paul say about that? Romans chapter Five. And Patty, I gave you the wrong reading assignment. It's supposed to be Romans chapter five. <laughs> okay, verses 12 through 15. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Okay, but let me read, first of all, Romans chapter five, verses six through 11. When we were with, yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet preventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And now, Patty, please read Romans 5, verses 12 through 15. It's all about Adam and all about Christ. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin... And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. 
For until now, until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Oh, thank you, thank you. Okay, so sin was in the world, and death came through sin. All because of Adam. How did Adam deal with this, you might wonder. I mean, he had to live with it a long time. He lived 930 years, so much of that time he lived with the knowledge that he had brought sin into the world. Incredible burden. I, we can't even imagine it for a moment. Now, he did have the example of the shed blood of the sacrifice, right, for a covering. He did have that example. Surely that must have made a difference, and he must have taught his children well. And yet his firstborn murdered his brother. What Adam and Eve had to live with is just incomprehensible. They're nearly never mentioned again after Genesis chapters one and two, only here and there, rarely are they mentioned again in the entire Bible. When they are, as you see here in Romans chapter five, through Adam, the one man came sin and death into the world. What a difference between that and the one man, Jesus Christ, through whom came life and righteousness right um okay so what we see though uh is that in due time when adam was 130 years old it says what we just read that adam and eve had another son his name was given by adam not by god but his name was given by adam and the name was seth which means the substitute. Now, not only was he the substitute for Abel, I don't know how there could be a substitute for Abel. I don't really think that was the intention. I think the point of it was that there would have to be a substitute, thinking back to the seed of the woman promise, or there could be no victory over sin and death. And it was sin and death and the consequence of that that dominated everyone's life from that point onwards. It's just an amazing thing to consider. The more you think of it, the more you become overwhelmed by it. I'm sure that's true for you. It certainly has been for me. But it was not without 
a crimson thread revealed also that sin and death reigned because, as we saw, God made a coat of skins to give them a certain kind of fellowship still with the Lord God, not perfect anymore, but through blood shed, right? And then that was promoted by Abel, and that's why his brother murdered him, right? Because Abel brought of the firstlings of the flock uh, and uh, offered them up, and Cain would not do that. And there was a very clear demonstration that God received Abel's sacrifice offering, and he did not receive Cain's. A very clear evidence that it was a shedding of a blood of, an, of the blood of an innocent one that was required for fellowship with God. And that, of course, pointed forward to the once and for all sacrifice of our coming Redeemer, right? Okay, so there's a scarlet thread revealed there as we look at Adam. And now let's look again just for a moment at Abel because. For Abel, an animal sacrifice made the difference. And uh, I'd like uh, Tom to read those verses there in Genesis 4. These are really important verses. I hope we all understand that in sort of setting the course really for all that will follow here in Genesis. So uh, Tom, Genesis 4, verses 1 through 4. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Abel brought the fruit of the ground and offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock, and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Thank you, Tom. So it's clear that Abel also brought the fruit of the earth, but he brought, in addition to that, the firstlings of his flock. Okay. So there was blood shed, and God accepted, God received that offering, the one of Abel. He did not receive the one of Cain. What did Cain offer up? Sadly, he offered up his brother's blood. He shed the blood of his brother, not the blood of the sacrificial animal. And God judged him accordingly. And that blood that was shed, the Lord Jesus said, still cries from the ground. And <laughs> I'd like Gail to read those verses. Uh, these are not the exact verses about the blood crying <laughs> still from the, the ground, but uh, other verses directly to the point. Gail, Matthew 23, verses 33 through 39. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send you unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, 
and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them you sh some of them shall you scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, and the blood of righteous Abel, unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou hast killest the prophets and stonest them, which are sent unto you. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Thank you, Gail. So the blood is still in the mind of Almighty God. According to Genesis 4.10, where I read these words, and he said, this is just after Cain has killed his brother, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. So there was a trail of blood, beginning with Cain's offering, up of his brother's blood. And there was a crimson thread of redemptive blood testified from the beginning, both of them running concurrently, the one offering only sin and death, the other life and hope through the provision of a substitute. Praise God that these are revealed in the beginning of Genesis. And then we come to chapter five. Another son is born. And even his name foreshadows the coming substitute. So this is Genesis 5.3. Adam lived 130 years. This was already read for us earlier. And he begat a son in his own likeness and after his image and called his name Seth. So what we're seeing is the genealogy. Remember it said this was the genealogy. This was the book. Uh, Genesis chapter uh, 5, verse 1, uh, it says there, Genesis 5, 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And so we see how that goes. Now we finally come to Seth. His name means substitute. That's what it means. He was God's substitute for Abel, but more importantly, a foreshadowing of how God required a substitute for sinful man, for otherwise there could be no ongoing fellowship, only judgment, okay? And so you had now two families on the earth, those coming out of Cain and those coming out of Seth. What do you think that would be on Seth's mind throughout his entire life, named substitute, knowing full well what had happened to Abel, 
just after he had given a testimony of the sacrifice of an innocent animal, right? What do you think would have been on Seth's mind down through all of these years? Well, the genealogy tells us a lot. I want to give you some hints as to what the genealogy there in chapter 5 tells us. Because if the whole point is going to be that father is going to be passing on to son, what's critically important for living. After all, they're spending their days eating bread in the sweat of their brow. Thorn and thistles are the enemy, and animals have have become their enemies to some degree as well, right? And Satan is all about with his emissaries. So life is very, very difficult, but what is on their minds? What was on Seth's mind, you you wonder? And I'd just like to point out a couple of things we learned from chapter 5 of Genesis. First of all, there were as many as seven generations living together during the years from Adam till Noah. The years from Adam until Noah, according to that genealogy in chapter 5, were 1,056 years from Adam's birth, creation rather, until Noah's birth, 1,056 years. But because of the length of lives, many of their lives overlapped greatly for many hundreds of years, okay? One thing you learn from the genealogy is that Adam died 56 years after Noah's father was born. Think about that. Noah's father, Lamech, was 56 years old when Adam died, according to that genealogy. Did did he know Adam, do you think, maybe? Hmm. Interestingly, also, we see Noah's father, Lamech. Lamech was 168 years old when Seth died. Seth and Noah's father had dwelt in the same land. You think maybe he knew him? Do you think he knew what he testified concerning this crimson thread? Of course, right? Noah himself was born only 14 years after Seth died. That's just, it's mind-boggling, right? At that time, there were seven generations living side by side. Seven generations side by side. But that Noah's father was 56 years old when Adam died. I mean, this is just totally mind-boggling. Okay, there's more. Noah lived for... 100 years alongside Lamech, his father, who had known Seth and all the other patriarchs, including Enoch, who walked with God and was translated and did not see death. Do you think Enoch had a testimony? If he walked with God, do you think they all had learned something of that testimony? Even Noah's father who had lived 500 years with Lamech 
his father by the side, his side. Oh, my. Lamech died only five years before the flood year. Methuselah, who was Lamech's father and Noah's grandfather, died at the beginning of the flood year. So, generation after generation of the Seth line, the Sethites knew so much about the proper worship of God, and it was through blood sacrifice. So the trail of blood and the scarlet thread of redemption were well known uh, during that long period. And we read of that in the next uh, section here. The example of Noah, where we see that true worship revolves around the altar. And so I'd like... Uh, um, to read that for you, Genesis chapter 5, verse 28. Lamech lived 182 years and begat his a son and called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. So, lo <coughs> Lamech named his son Noah, which means comfort. You wonder, did he do this prophetically or just in hope that somehow his son could make a difference? I suspect it was prophetically that he named Noah. The same shall comfort concerning the work and toil of our hands. Well, perhaps it was prophetic, right? Noah was 500 years old when he fathered Japheth, then a year later Ham and a year later Shem. And during that time, he preached the righteous judgment of God for over 100 years. And then the flood came in his 600th year. So Noah did bring peace and comfort, but not as his father might have expected, <laughs> because he and his sons and their wives and his wife were all comforted and delivered by the ark, right? <laughs> so Noah was a preacher of righteousness and a builder of an ark. Think about it. Do you think they got a lot of help, maybe hired some contractors, whatever, uh, I don't know. I think they would probably built it themselves, and that's why it took 100 years. But uh, finally, the flood passes, and now I'd like us to read of that. And I'd like Elizabeth to read what the next event was after the flood ended. Uh, Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, 
winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Thank you, Elizabeth. So the flood had subsided, and immediately Noah did what he had learned so well. He built an altar and offered a burnt offering on that altar in worship and thanksgiving to Almighty God. I think he'd been offering all along on the ark itself, because if you read back earlier, you see in the selection of the animals, there were two pairs of each animal except of the unclean and seven pairs of the clean who were suitable for sacrifice. So I think they'd been he'd been offering all along. It doesn't say so, but it's just a little conclusion I've drawn from that. So that's the example of Noah. The scarlet thread continued after the flood. The first thing that came to mind was to sacrifice. Shedding of blood was the requirement. Then we come to Abraham, and you know a lot about Abraham. I would say the theme of Abraham's life is from beginning to end, only God is worthy. And he learned that. Where did he learn that? Well, he, he learned it um, by direct experience of the Lord God in his life who had intersected with him and called him into a land that he said he would give him and promised him an, an offspring and even a great family, right? Uh, but I believe he was taught that earlier by his father, Terah, though I don't believe Abraham personally had faith until later. But it doesn't say that for sure. It does say he had faith in chapter 15, right? There were eight generations still alive when Abraham was called eight generations. So there was much opportunity for training up. I misspoke just now, sorry. When Noah, sorry, when Noah, eight generations were still alive. So Noah passed on what he knew to his offspring and a number of generations later, uh, Terah no doubt did the same. Terah died, according to the genealogy in chapter 5, before Shem, Noah's youngest son, right? Terah, Abraham's father, died before Shem but lived for 128 years. Shem lived for 128 years while Noah was still alive. So they passed on the tradition. The crimson thread was at the very, very center of their relationship with Almighty God. Now, Abraham went along, and though he was a digger of wells and dug a great many, and we already looked at these verses, but you notice that Abraham always responded in worship to the blessings of the Lord. And he did it by building an altar and sacrificing over and over and over. 
for example, after he was called, it says, the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, unto thy seed will I give this land. Genesis 12, 7. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Chapter 13, Abraham removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is Hebron, and he built there an altar unto the Lord. Chapter 22, after he had offered up Isaac on the mountain that God had commanded him to go to, after, just after he had offered up Isaac, and God had delivered Isaac by providing a sacrificial animal, right? So the animal's blood was shed instead of Isaac's. They immediately came back home, which was in Beersheba. And uh, it says there that Abraham offered up a sacrifice. Over and over and over again. That's Abraham's life, a life of Dilling wells in the wilderness, living there and offering sacrifice unto the Lord. What he did was to testify that uh, only God is worthy, not he himself. There was a substitute required if one would fellowship with God. He communicated the same very well to Isaac. Isaac lived in, with him many of those years when Abram was building altars and offering sacrifices, and he was certainly there and never forgot the Mount Moriah experience. Isaac's life was completely dominated by it, I think. And that's why there's nearly nothing about Isaac recorded in Genesis. He had a conflict with Abimelech, you remember, and they built an altar there. He dwelt by the well Laharoi, remember, and uh, Sarah had sent away Hagar, right? And she came to a well, and there God met with her. And she saw God and lived. And that well was named later by Isaac, it seems, the well of him that liveth and seeth me. And that is where I, Isaac dwelt with Jacob for many, many years. Living a quiet and simple life there with the blessing of God. It says, and God blessed Isaac there. That's Isaac's life. And then there came Jacob, where the altar testifies of a transformed life. Remember, Jacob was sent forth by his parents to find a wife back in the land of their fathers, right? But when he was sent forth, he stopped at a well. There he had a dream and built an altar, right? You remember that dream where angels were ascending and descending on a ladder, right? <laughs> oh, my. And when he returned with wives and children from Laban's, 20 years of bondage, he stopped at the same place and offered another sacrifice. Over and over, he did that. And then finally, after it's been revealed that his dear son, 
Joseph is alive and in Egypt. And in fact, the co-regent of Egypt, Jacob takes his entire family to Egypt during the famine, right? But where does he go first? He stops at a well, and that is Beersheba, right? And what does he do there? He'd previously offered sacrifice there. He sets up a pillar in the place where God had made the promise to him, I will fulfill your desires and keep you safe as you go back to your, the house of your fathers for a wife. And so God had done that. He'd blessed Jacob with wives and children, and Jacob gives worship and thanksgiving to God in that same place, pours out a drink offering there where there had been sacrifices offered before, just giving recognition of the blessing of God that had come. And so he often offered sacrifice. Why? Because of the crimson thread, right? There was there are two trails of blood, therefore, revealed in Genesis. Both are important. The one of sin and death, the other of life and peace. Through the shed blood of an innocent sacrifice. All pointing forward to the once and for all sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's so much to learn here. It's all very well recorded in a hymn. I just like to say this. <laughs> there was in 1865, the year that the Civil War ended, a woman singing in the choir in Maryland. And the preacher had preached long, and his prayer was even longer. And she was bothered by that, and was, her mind was wandering. And words came to her, and she wrote them down in the hymnal, on the cover of the hymnal, these words. After the service ended, she gave the hymnal to the pastor and said, this is what I wrote down during your prayer, which was kind of an offensive thing. But he read the words, and they were so precious. And someone else, the organist, had just written a song, a hymn, and had just given that song to the same pastor. And so it was appropriate to put the words of, of the poem together with the notes of the hymn. And that's what we have in Jesus Paid It All. Patty, would you please read that for us? I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. And now, complete in him, my robe, his righteousness, close sheltered neath his side, I am divinely blessed. 
Lord, now indeed I find thy power in thine alone can change the leopard's spot and melt the heart of stone. When from my dying bed my ransomed soul shall rise, Jesus died my soul to save, shall rend the vaulted skies. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, I'll lay my trophies down, all down at Jesus' feet. Okay, thank you, honey. Oh, those words say it so well. There was a crimson thread revealed at the beginning of Genesis and carried on throughout the entire book. And that same crimson thread leads to the shed blood of our precious Savior. Praise God. Praise God. How important is Genesis in the scripture, in the word of the living God? It's all important. Everything is founded upon it. Well, I hope this has been a blessing to you. It's certainly been a blessing to me as I prepared our lessons. And uh, I feel some of you may be like Elvina Hall that morning. She thought the preacher had preached long and the prayer was even longer. And she was frustrated and young and her mind was wandering. But what did the Lord give her but these words? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin, sin, sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Amen. Praise God all. I've got a question. Yes, go ahead, Tom. You said that Abel offered fruit of the ground. Yes, I don't see that. Yes, it's you see the word also there in that verse? Abel certainly was also a farmer. He had to live off of something, right? And they made beautiful produce, no doubt. And they offered up the best of what they had, but it was the shed blood of the animal that made the difference. Okay, thank you. Any other quick comments before we pray? Hi, uh, Thank you for sharing. And uh, what you said, you know, especially just resonate with me is that you said the substitute is required to have fellowship with God. Yes. And I never thought of that, way, but it really makes a lot of sense there because, you know, and there's no fellowship between the light and darkness. And the fact that and when God sees us, he sees Christ. That means there's spirit within us, and that is a substitute. And without that, just there's you know, no way that unbeliever can fellowship with God. Yes. Yes, indeed. Thanks, Louis. Louis, would you uh, like to lead us in prayer, please? Of course. And Father God, we just thank you for this opportunity that we are gathered here to listen to your word preach. And, uh, and we thank you for encouraging comfort and Jim to uh, study, to share this wonderful good news in a very uh, well laid out format and uh, with all the wonderful contents. And may the words be encouraging to us and uh, may we draw on 
dwell on the the wisdom of your teaching and uh, remember and believe it. And that may enable us to be confident and courageous and by sharing the truth with others so they may also see the light. And thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Louis. Thank you so much. Well, Lord bless all of you greatly as you continue to enjoy him and uh, and to enjoy his fellowship around the completed work of our Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, right? Praise God for that. Enjoy the Lord all. Amen.